Welcome to the Start a Brewery podcast, where we discuss all things relating to startups, open, and growing breweries from concept to execution. We are pleased to partner with All About Beer to bring you this podcast. You're joining us today for episode 13, Equipment and Infrastructure Part 2. I'm Laura Lodge, here with Candice Moon, and we're excited to welcome you to our ongoing podcast journey. As your hosts and founders of Start a Brewery, we both have extensive experience in our areas of specialty. Candace is the craft beer attorney, having worked with more than 500 brewery clients over time, and my background is a mix of distribution, event planning, and craft beer education. You can find more information about us and our contributors, plus a whole bunch of info and resources, at startabrewery.com. To begin, we appreciate today's podcast sponsor. ABS Commercial has been your full-service brewery outfitter for over 10 years, they are proud to offer brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts to brewers across the country, as well as equipment for distilling, cider making, wine making, and more. They know the ins and outs of the brewing and installation process and can design the perfect setup for you. Whether you're just starting out or looking to expand, visit them today at abs-commercial.com to discuss your customized brewery needs. ABS Commercial, we are brewers. For those of you who have not yet listened to episode 12, both episodes 12 and 13 are continuing our conversation with regard to the decision-making needed to flesh out a compelling business plan. This follows episode 009, kitchens, plus the question of tap rooms versus brew pubs versus production brewery, episode 10, design and build strategies, and more recently, episode 11, what are you brewing, with Eric Fowler of White Labs, Nico Tonks of YCH, and Neil Witte of Tapstar, Craft Quality Solutions, and the Cicerone Certification Program. It's interesting to thread all of these topics together as they impact each other, and a change to one can shift everything else in the other areas. Episodes 12 and 13 consider one of the most popular topics of conversation when talking about any brewery, brewing equipment. In episode 12, our guests covered a fantastic amount of territory with actionable advice, complete with cautions, questions to ask, best practices, and simply filling in the blanks about general assumptions that may not be accurate. We're excited to take the conversation deeper into bottling, custom-designed equipment, more pricing and complete system setups, etc. So let's dive down some good equipment rabbit holes and see what we find today. So I'd like to welcome back again. This is our first uh, part two. We've never had something that had so much information. We had to, to do a second episode. Um, so we want to welcome back Brian Mollahan, Alex Smith, and Chris Leach. Uh, again, for those who haven't listened to the prior episode, I'm going to let these guys introduce themselves again. But I do highly recommend going back to the first one, um, potentially before diving to this one. But we've got a lot more information coming at you. So, Brian, you want to give us a quick bio? Yeah, absolutely. Good morning. My name is Brian Mollahan. I'm with Ruby Street Brewing. Um, we're a small family-owned business out of northern Colorado that we manufacture small-scale brewing equipment, um, primarily focusing on hot side pilot equipment for the beer industry. Awesome. Alex? Yeah, my name is Alex Smith, I'm sales and consultation manager for ABS Commercial. Um, we sell pretty much everything that's stainless as it applies to the brewery. Uh, we're also a family-owned company based out of Raleigh, North Carolina. And Chris. This is Chris Leach again with Wild Goose Filling. We do canning and bottling lines for small to mid-size breweries. I think that's good enough for now. Okay. So let's jump into it. Okay. So we're going to pick up uh, some of the questions we had for the first episode we weren't able to get to. So uh, Alex, what kind of onboarding installation support should be expected from equipment manufacturers? Um, I would say this is really a moving target and it kind of depends on each manufacturer, I think, has uh, a different protocol. Um, we've also noticed that it is somewhat customer dependent as well. It's kind of interesting for us because we will see folks um, who bought systems from us that may have done a couple homebrew batches and that is the extent of their brewing, you know, career. And then there's also folks who have been in the industry for 20 years and, um, you know, 
pretty much know it like the back of their hand. So for us, we do kind of a two-part. We'll um, send an engineer out just to basically do final wiring, make sure everything's operating as it should. Um, then we do also send someone like myself or one of our brewers to spend a few days on site and actually brew their first batch of beer with them. Um, again, we found that there's a lot of value to the customer. It's also a value to us because we can kind of ensure that everything's working at, as it should. You know, if something's missing or if something isn't operating as it should, we can get in front of that, you know, basically um, preempt any problems. Um, we also, each manufacturer has specific designs, you know, uh, piping, for instance, that's designed to work a certain way. And if you're not familiar, even if you've been brewing for 20 years, but you haven't used this particular system, there may be some best practices or things that you may be missing that can make your life a lot easier. And, uh, you know, really at the end of the day, I think at least from any, um, you know, kind of domestic, um, based manufacturer, you should expect some time on site. At the end of the day, it kind of saves everyone a little bit of time because we can, you know, show up for a day or two and pretty much cover everything versus spending, you know, weeks on and off the phone, exchanging emails, you know, it, it kind of just makes for a more efficient and more streamlined process. Um, that is something to just kind of keep in mind if you're going, um, say direct to a Chinese manufacturer or something along those lines, don't expect any support whatsoever. Basically once that container leaves China, you're on your own. Um, so even, you know, at that point, even freight logistic support is not included often. So some things to kind of keep in mind. And again, this is something, these are good questions to ask at the very beginning or, you know, once you start going down the road, what do you guys standard offer that's standard? And if you have specific needs or specific concerns, you know, address those and see if your your manufacturer is willing to be flexible and meet those. Awesome. Well, you actually answered my second question, which was about international uh, manufacturer support. Uh, so uh, good to know, um, Chris. So I'm gonna, I'm, we're gonna, I'm gonna switch around a little bit here. So, with recent can shortage, do you recommend hybrid packaging with some bottles or other ways to navigate that concern? Or do you have any insight about Ball or other companies expanding to help alleviate the concern? Yeah, it's a great, great question to cover. Um, when we were in the pandemic, we hit a, uh, we as in the the U.S can market anybody canning from Budweiser down to the smallest craft brewery hit a, a point where can supply was tight. There was more demand than there were cans for a period of time. Um, and that there was, that was for a few reasons during the pandemic. Um, everybody is at home drinking out of some kind of container at home. And with the popularity of cans, everything was mostly in cans and it was beer, seltzer, uh, soft drinks, you know, a non-alcoholic seltzer, a lot of that's been the preferred package for many consumer beverages for a while now. So the supply of, I'm sorry, the demand for cans shot up once everybody had to stay home. And as you can imagine, supply chains, we've heard countless times that were disrupted during the pandemic. So uh, then lastly, the, the domestic can manufacturers uh, were, you know, producing at a level that was meeting demand and then demand spiked. And it takes a long time for a can manufacturer to increase their capacity, you know, like years to open up a can manufacturing plant. Um, just the the lead time alone on a machine that makes cans is, you know, over a year. Uh, so it took a long time for the domestic suppliers to catch up to demand. Um, so what happened in that time was third-party suppliers of cans who are most Often who small craft breweries are buying from, they're not buying from Ball or Crown directly. They're getting from a third party. They started sourcing cans from overseas. Um, so you're seeing a lot of cans come in from Asia uh, to help supplement the, the demand. Um, and then recently in the last year or so, overseas manufacturers have been opening plants in the U.S. So Ball and Crown and Ardow are the big U.S. providers and manufacturers of cans. Um, we're seeing folks from overseas opening plants here domestically, one's in Texas, one's in New Hampshire, and there's, there's more. So they've started to help make up the demand 
uh, or I'm sorry, the supply for the demand. Um, and then lastly, demand has shrunk now that we're back open from pandemic times. Uh, we're able to put more beer into kegs and um, there's just less at-home drinking than there was during that pandemic. So now we're, we're at a point where it, it took so long to get supply up that demand is coming down. So we're seeing a whiplash effect where I just heard Ball is closing, um, just one example, the Wallkill facility in New York, um, mainly because just thinking about future growth, they're landlocked a bit. They can't expand any further on that site. So they're closing that plant to reinvest in other plants throughout the country. Uh, so I, can shortage is something I hear often from customers when we talk on the phone now, but it's a it's something that's no longer really an issue for the people that are gonna be listening to this podcast. Folks that are developing a brand like White Claw that kind of comes out of nowhere and is all of a sudden in every state, in every grocery store, in every gas station within a couple of years, folks like that might have a hard time locking up um, production for a specific can, especially a sleek can like the White Claw can. But for folks that are starting listening to this podcast, likely the size you're going to be for the foreseeable future, you're buying a couple pallets here and there of cans. So really can shortage isn't uh, something folks should be concerned about right now. Um, that being said, though, to answer the question about cans versus bottle diversity, um, I, I would say diversity is important. And the pandemic taught us that with taproom only models that had to shut down and they had no other means of selling their beer, had to scramble to figure out a way to get their beer into cans or into growlers or into crowlers. So having some diversity of some kind is important so that you can sell your beer in a few different ways. I don't know if doing bottling and canning is the right path for that. To, to consider the capital cost to get equipment to both bottle and can, there are two different machines, um, of course, is a big expense. Plus, when you think about distribution and skews for a can, a 12 ounce can, if you were to sell that a 12 ounce bottle, distributors and retailers would want to see a separate skew for each product, whether it be a bottle or can. Um, so shelf placements might be different as far as, you know, height on shelf. If you're a can, you might be in a narrower shelf to get a bottle in there. It could be more challenging. Sourcing materials, sourcing bottles, uh, you know, all the stuff to put the liquid into. Just things to consider if you're trying to do both bottling and canning. Um, and then the obvious thing now is most consumers want cans. There's really not much demand for I would say new package coming out in bottles. There's some legacy folks that have been bottling for a long time that still have demand for their product, but somebody that's opening now, there's just not a whole lot of demand for beer and bottles. Um, so last point on this question, I would say diversity, uh, not just keg to can, but if, uh, you know, maybe stay open-minded to a different size can. If you're buying those 12 ounce sleeks for your product, like the White Claw can, um, you know, be open-minded to shift to a 12 ounce standard can. That's the most widely produced can and you'll have a better shot of getting those if you run into supply issues of those, those skinnier cans. That's it. So the one thing I wanted to mention, you, you mentioned buying a pallet of cans. Um, and, and I know that Ball had switched to that at some point that you, you couldn't get less than a pallet. And so from the, from the lawyer side of things in the trademark world, you want to be really cautious before you invest in a pallet of cans that you are good on the name and you're not going to get a cease and desist, which is going to then force you to have to uh, get rid of a whole bunch of cans that you already bought. Um, you want to make sure your label's correct. Uh, you want to make sure it's approved by the TTB. Um, all the things you need to make sure that those cans aren't suddenly going to have to be trashed, which I've had multiple clients have to deal with, whether it's trademark issues, a misprint on the can, um, or rejection by TTB of the label. So, uh, Laura, did you want to add? Um, question for Chris. Um, we're seeing a lot of trend towards 16 ounce cans, and now I'm seeing more about 19 twos. Um, do you think that there's some concern when you're choosing your packaging equipment about that flexibility? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll um, just clear up one thing that Candace had said. She was right. Ball had increased their minimums, and it, was, it wasn't a pallet of cans, it was truckloads. They used oh, to sorry. be a, you know, a minimum of one truckload, then they went up to five truckloads as a minimum order quantity. And then they've 
walked that back a bit because they got a lot of blowback. So, but anyways, that's the reason why you normally buy from a third party supplier. But the the point is great if you're getting printed cans. You need that's a big commitment. Um, and then as far as Laura's question about can size flexibility, that is certainly something to consider when when shopping for equipment is the flexibility to do different can size. What is the change over time and what's the change over cost? Um, those can sizes that Laura had mentioned, the 12, 16, 19, 2, they're all the same diameter body and also the same diameter lid, which is, I would say for you know, mo certainly ours, but I would say most packaging equipment is most flexible within that that uh, family of cans. I would say if you're a, a business that's starting to be a distillery and brewery, or you're doing coffee and beer, uh, or kombucha, or you know, whatever, if you're gonna do beer in another beverage, that would be something to consider where you might be doing skinny cans and standard cans. That's where a cost and complexity could get much higher. It's all possible. It's just get those costs up front. Um, you know, uh, probably the biggest change is from a standard, say, 16 ounce can to a 250 milliliter uh, um, slim can is the line. That takes a smaller lid. Uh, and in some industries like the distillery industry and the wine industry, they have restrictions on what can size they can and can't sell. And it has to do with um, you know, the wine industry following the leader model. So, you know, something that's divisible by a leader. Um, anyway, th that changeover is like a $30,000 changeover on, on our equipment. So, you know, it's pretty big cost. If, you know, talk with your salesperson about what those costs are and is there something that's maybe a smaller um, price jump that, that would be suitable for you. To follow up there, I, I think some of the smaller manual systems, like just the single Oktoberfest canners, those might not be able to do some of those transitions or, or changes, right? That's a great point. I, I'm not that intimately familiar with them, but it's certainly possible. Yeah, for sure. It's something to know up front and, and make zero assumptions when you're buying this equipment and, and try to you know turn over every rock to figure out if it can do exactly what you want it to do. Right. Cool. That, that made me think of one thing, Laura, if I could say one more thing is, you know, turn over every rock just to make sure. It, I think a lot of people come into this hoping that the, the salesperson they're talking to or the consultant they're talking to is going to give them all the information that they need. Um, and that's really hard speaking from somebody on the sales side to do. And uh, I'll ask you questions to kind of narrow down the scope of what we're going to talk about. Um, but if we don't talk at all about, you know, a, a cocktail product going into a can and we're only talking about beer, um, and then later down the road, you're like, why didn't you tell me this can't do this? And, you know, you think back at those early conversations and I'm like, I can't give you all the information at once. That's too overwhelming. So be very clear with who you're talking to and what you want to achieve so that you can get the right information out of them. Excellent point. Okay, let's uh, switch switch gears again. Brian, do you design custom systems for people who need special features or are brewing non-mainstream styles of beer or brewing in unique ways? And then kind of as a follow-up, do you recommend building custom systems? Yeah. So uh, we actually do a lot of custom fabrication for a few different industries, but specific to breweries, I think the most common requests we get are for systems that are customized for brewing with gluten-free grains and or, you know, process specific things like step mashes or decoctions that are critical to certain beer styles. When, whenever you build a customized brewing system, it's, it's kind of always a fine line between getting the customer exactly what they need today and also building something that is going to retain some retail value down the road for them. You know, some of the things we do are really simple, like we gluten-free brewing only requires a a specialized false bottom that has a much narrower slot width because you don't have that good husk material that you get from barley, you know, and when we're selling a system like that, I pretty much always recommend that they purchase the system both with the specialized false bottom, but also with the standard false bottom as well at the same time. That way everything's fit out of the factory and, um, they, they'll have something that can be easily resold and, and used for traditional brewing down the road. You know, one other thing we get requests for are breweries that want components left out, typically to save on cost. 
you know, when their specific brewing style doesn't require those parts. So we'll have customers that will ask for a system to be built with, say, only one pump. Um, or we leave a, uh, you know, they want no heating option on the mash ton. So in these cases, it's typically a conversation, kind of letting them know that the small upfront savings could likely impact the saleability of the equipment down the road. You know, while it's often better to have those standard features built into the system and just not utilize them, sometimes it's a compromise where we'll go ahead and install like all of the, you know, the circuits and the controls and that type of stuff and then wave out the components, but they could be easily added later with the infrastructure on the brewing system present to support that stuff. Now, I kind of also like to address that while you want this system to be built for how you're brewing today, you should also be thinking ahead and we want to build you a system that's going to suit your needs as you grow and evolve into other methods and procedures as well. Awesome. Laura? Um, Brian, do you do a lot of gadgets? Like I know the farm brewery I'm working with, um, they ordered like a, a hook to hang some of the like adjuncts from the top of the kettle. Do you do a lot of stuff like that? We do a lot of stuff like that. Typically on the fitting side, you know, people call me, it's like, can we get a fitting that adapts this to this because we have this specific need or something really unique we do. Um, so yeah, we, yeah, as a, you know, as a small manufacturer that we don't have big like manufacturing lines that are pumping out specific parts. That's a lot of what we, what we end up with. Very cool. I'm totally going to start calling you inspector now. <laughs> Um, okay, so Alex, to continue with the customization uh, systems, have you seen trends in specialty brewing with specialty equipment? Thinking cool ships, barrel aging uh, with chips and stainless that continue to expand the kinds of equipment available or adapt existing equipment in other ways? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I do feel like it's kind of the nature of um, of the brewing industry where we, you know, we'll see kind of these trends of things that get popular and then we're figuring out the best way to do it. Um, some of those trends will stick around and some end up falling by the wayside. Um, unfortunately, in, in my view, it does seem like the mixed culture um, beers, you know, that did use cool ships and that kind of thing have fallen by the wayside. Um, it almost goes hand in hand with what Chris was talking about in bottles going you know extinct almost it's it's can be hard to command a that high dollar amount which is interesting when you think people are readily willing to spend 24 dollars on a four pack of cans but to get them to spend 18 dollars on a 750 seems to be a harder ask so um we're not seeing as much of that the two trends that i would say we are seeing the most um decoctions are like decoction capable systems are we get the requests a lot what we have found though is it is a fairly expensive add-on um, it typically requires another vessel or at the very least a pretty expensive pump that can move that mash flurry back and forth you are complicating the system a fair amount and typically you know, if you're doing all decoction beers, it makes sense to to do that. If you're if you've got one beer that you may want to do decoction on, it typically isn't worth spending an extra 20, 30 grand on your your system for that one beer. And a lot of times I think people are just curious. They they want to know if they can do it. There are some, you know, more crude ways that you can do it, but for really like a, a design decoction system, you're looking at a pretty significant cash outlay. Um, I won't go down the controversial topic of the impact it has on the beer, but um, yeah, so that's, we're, we're definitely seeing a lot of interest um, in those systems. And we've developed a number of designs. I will say probably 20% of the people who initially ask for those systems end up going with one though, because of the, the cost. Um, as Brian said too, the the further down those like really specific customization roads you go, looking towards the future, it does impact the resale. You know, it, it's something our stock systems are designed to make you know ninety percent of beers well, 
Um, once you start deviating from that path, you can get, um, it becomes basically more of a niche item. Um, the second thing that we're starting to see a lot is um, the ability to do lower temperature hop stands. So we will actually either make three vessel systems that have a dedicated kettle and then a heat exchanger, um, a tube heat exchanger, so it can actually process hops um, before going into a dedicated whirlpool so that you can kind of steep those hops at a lower temperature. The idea being you're extracting the flavor and aroma, but you're not isomerizing the hops as much, so you're not pulling as much bitterness. So with the New England style IPAs, that's a very you know popular process. Um, we can also do put that shell and tube heat exchanger on a kind of whirlpool system, and you basically, um, you know, can just isolate the work path to do that before you you knock out or while you're whirlpooling. Um, so those are kind of the two biggest trends that we're seeing. And uh, again, I would I would have a clear idea of what you're trying to do. You want to build in a system that has flexibility, but you don't necessarily want to go with something that's too specialized because it is going to end up limiting you in, in other ways. Got it. So right now we'll take a short break for our sponsor message. ABS Commercial has been your full service brewery outfitter for over 10 years, offering brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts to brewers across the country. Let them design the perfect brew house setup for you. Visit them today at abs-commercial.com to discuss your customized brewery needs. Okay. So, Chris, um, we've seen growlers become mainstream for community tap rooms and then crowlers for sealed mobility. Previously, other packaging like party pigs and boxed wine have become popular in some areas for some beverages. Do you see other non-standard packaging trending as we move forward and finding new ways to be environmentally friendly and add convenience? Yeah, good, good question here. Um, the short answer is no, I haven't. Um, but if I could take the time to elaborate more just on growlers and crowlers in general, um, I would say a few years ago, I saw somebody trying to come out with a growler that was like a milk carton. I forget what that package is called, but I, I don't think that went anywhere. I haven't seen that much at all. Um, but so growlers seem to be really fading out quite a bit. Most of the breweries I talk to, it, the weight of them, storing them, um, purchasing them, it's uh, cleaning them. They feel it's kind of a pain in the butt. And the crowler has become so popular uh, folks that don't know, crowlers are a 32 ounce can with a, it's just bigger in every sense. The body of the can is big, obviously it's 32 ounces. The lid is much bigger, um, but it looks like a blown up beverage can. Um, so for a long time, growlers, the big glass 32 or 64 ounce jugs were filled in tap rooms with a, uh, a cap screwed on top. The opening was pretty small. Um, if you filled it with a tube and maybe purged it with CO2, you were able to get a pretty good fill, fill it to the top um, to push out all oxygen. And if it was filled from the bottom up, screwed on, most bartenders could do that pretty well and get a pretty good shelf life out of it. Although most people understood a, a glass growler had to be consumed quickly, yeah, as soon as you can. And as soon as it's opened, you have to finish it. Um, crowlers have a lot of benefits. Um, one-time use people, don't, you know, you don't have to clean them at your bar. Um, there's a lot of great things about crawlers, but really some of the glaring downsides are they look like a packaged product that you would get off of a, off a canning line. So there's a, a consumer perception of this is just a big can and I can put this in my fridge for three months or, you know, you, it goes in your beer fridge and you forget about it. Um, but in reality, it's actually a, a worse package product than a growler. Uh, bartenders are filling them. I often don't see filled tubes so that you're not bottom filling. You're filling straight from the, the top out of the tap. So it's like pouring a pint, um, putting a lid on and then sealing in something like an October seamer or, or a Dixie seamer. Um, and then, so the fill process is kind of shaky from a person who is not trained to be a packaging person, a person that's trained to be a bartender. So they don't really understand the principles of putting liquid into a can while picking up the least amount of oxygen. And then secondly, the sealing process on a growler, the glass growlers, you have a cap that was designed to just 
torque on and anybody can torque on a, a growler cap and have a really good seal. The double seam of a can is a bit intricate and requires equipment that can fold over the two flanges of the, the can and the lid and then uh, compress them together to get a really tight fitting seal. There's a lot of nuance there. Um, the inexpensive Crowler machines are you know, value engineered so that it could physically attach the two together. Um, and they may give you some canning uh, uh, seam specs to make sure you're within spec. But folks that are using these things a lot, it's you know aluminum material that wears very quickly. So your specs can quickly veer um, and they're also applied by hand pressure, which doesn't always get you the best seal either. One person's hand pressure is different than another person's hand pressure. So uh, it between consumer perception of thinking it's going to last a long time, and then in reality, it could last hours or days, um, It's you're setting yourself up for your brand to take a bit of a beating when a consumer brings a can home, they've got your label on it, they wait two weeks, they bring it somewhere else, it gets open and it tastes like crap because it's been oxidized, uh, They consumers don't say, oh my gosh, this was poorly packaged. And I imagine their beer is delicious. Yet uh, through the packaging process, it now tastes like cardboard. They say, this beer sucks. <laughs> this brewery sucks. Uh, we're not going to go back here. So be very careful with crawlers and be very aware uh, when you're going into that. The The upside is the really inexpensive way to get cans out there and the, and the profit margins on them are really good. Yeah, it sounds like a, maybe a good uh, practice would be to put a drink by date on them as well. Like, I, I'm totally guilty of the putting the crawl in the fridge. I probably need to clean some out right now and throw some things away. Um, but that that's good information. I definitely wasn't aware uh, of all of that. Laura? Um, in, in general, just kind of thinking in the overview of, of crawlers versus crawlers, with everybody tightening their belts with, you know, with, with increasing costs, I'm going to be curious. I, I I think the upside from an accounting perspective would be that the consumer expects to buy the growler or bring back the growler to refill. So the brewery is not actually paying for the packaging. Whereas if you're crowler, if you're canning crowlers, then you're paying for the packaging um, as the brewery. So your cost would be higher on a crowler. Do you think that there's going to be any kind of awareness of that? I mean, it seems to me like if you're pinching pennies, you'd want somebody else to pay for the packaging. That's a great question. I think like all costs in your business, they, you know, get worked in and, and pay, you know, the, the consumers paying for it either way, whether it's just worked into the cost of um, the crowler, you, you don't see deposits on crowlers or increased costs. It's just to fill a crowler, it's this much right. money. Um, and a crowler can, I'm guessing here, but is probably 50 cents or so for a can um, in the lid. And a growler is going to be a, a few dollars it's been so long since I've bought one that I can't even remember. Um, I would say one thing to consider is a if you're paying, you have to as a brewery, you have to buy these things up front and then you have to store them. So when right. you think about the upfront cost of buying a pallet of growlers um, versus the cost of a pallet of crowlers, the per unit cost is a lot lower on crowlers. So your you I'm not an accountant, right. so I don't know what it's called, but your inventory cost will be, you know, lower right. on a Growler. And the freight. Right. You know, part of this question was talking about, uh, I forget exactly, but essentially like environmentally way, environmental ways to, to package. The growler is reusable. So once you get past that idea of, you know, heavier to ship, more expensive to ship, more expensive to buy, if you are dedicated as a consumer or a brewery to having something truly environmentally friendly, a jug that can be refilled endlessly with the cap being the only thing that's replaced. I would say that's a great way to go. That being said, consumer demand is very low for glass growlers. Right. I hear you. And, and having the convenience of the, the crawler and transportation being lighter and blah, 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 and carrying it to the top of the mountain and all the things that we do with them. Gotcha. And in, infinitely recyclable. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, Again, the lawyer and compliance person here, um, more and more states are jumping on recycling fees. And so depending on your state, uh, you may have to file reports every month um, on uh, what you're packaging, what you're selling. Um, and in terms, and actually, uh, so in California for aluminum, it's by size. 
So there's the crawler sizes and then the under 24 ounces. Um, so the more crawlers you're selling, you're also, you want to factor in those costs as well that you're paying. And I think more states are jumping on board with that. As I see the can lids continue to add more states to the list. So, okay, let's, uh, let's move on. Um, Brian, how has the rise of seltzer and other alcoholic beverages changed the design or use of the equipment you're making? Um, have you needed to modify in any way to accommodate cider, seltzer, kombucha? Uh, and do you give brewers specific instructions about brewing those different beverages? So interesting. We we don't actually do much with ciders and seltzers as those tend to be more of a cold side process and we are strictly a hot side manufacturer. I would say what we have been pretty engaged in is the uh, the kombucha market and the growing kombucha market. You know, and this is kombucha is typically simplified brewing equipment. It focuses more on the temperature control and the volume. And, you know, a lot of times with the equipment, we use the same framework that we would use for brew houses, but it ends up being with different vessels. So it'll be two to three boil kettles. To, to just make a significant volume and then the necessary heat exchangers for, for that type of stuff. You know, um, I, like I said, it's kind of a little bit of more of a cold side process. I might see if Alex has something to chime in on with, uh, with seltzers and ciders. Um, yeah. I mean, the seltzers in my mind, it's more on the, the cold side filtering, carbon filtering and that kind of thing. Um, I think, the yeast manufacturers have also done a good job of responding to like really low ester, low nutrient requirement yeasts. Um, but yeah, I mean, both of those processes are fairly simple. We have done a couple, um, you know, quote unquote skids and they're, they're essentially just uh, heated mixing vessels, you know, because at the end of the day, even a lot of cideries are using like apple juice concentrate. So they're just diluting pasteurizing and then pushing that through a heat exchanger and pitching yeast um same same with seltzer you know you're just dissolving sugar kind of pasteurizing it and then pushing it through a heat exchanger so it's a much more kind of stripped down process um you know you can also just that's really only for companies that are only doing that we've actually seen the same thing with meteries kind of same you know we're just dissolving sugar um but a lot of time, you know, if it's a brewery that's also making these as, as secondary products, they can always just use their kettle. Um, you know, it isn't purpose built for it, but a lot of times that Whirlpool arm and a standard steam kettle will do pretty much everything you need. Awesome. Okay, Alex, actually, I'm going to stick with you for the next one. Uh, so many startups don't have a good idea what they're looking for when they are pricing out equipment. Uh, for the brewery and plug the numbers for brew house and fermenters into their business plan. Obviously, there's a whole lot more to be considered in cost and equipment, such as glycol chillers, ventilation, et cetera, that needs to be factor in, factored in for a more accurate big picture estimate of cost. Is there a list of suggested basic equipment somewhere? Um, I mean, we actually, our quotes are built. Um, I always hesitate to use the word turnkey because it's not, it means something different to different people, but our quotes actually include, you know, on a steam system, it'll include a steam boiler. It'll include a glycol chiller and we don't build those items. So we work with, you know, right boiler for steam generators or Sussman for electric ones, um, pro chiller on the glycol chiller side. And it's not something that we, again, we don't build it. We don't even, we don't make any, profit off of it it's more as kind of a service so that you aren't necessarily having to you know buy eight different things or close eight different invoices um that can also be really important for people who are you know getting a loan where it's a lot easier for them to go to the bank and say you know this is again a quote unquote turnkey. This has all the high dollar items besides like install and you know construction fees, that kind of stuff. But my equipment is going to be two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, you know, and this is the invoice, and it it's one vendor, so it, it makes those transactions a lot easier. 
Um, I think most manufacturers do some variation of that. Um, it's important to make sure, again, we, the, the refrain is make sure you're asking your, your vendors um, these pointed questions and make sure you're planning for the future. Um, the glycol tiller is probably the biggest one that comes to mind when um, purchasing because you do not, it's, it, it is an expensive piece of equipment. It's typically the most expensive piece of equipment besides the brew house. Um, but you don't want to buy one that is sized for your initial seller order when you know you're going to be doubling or tripling that seller, you know, in three to five years. Um, that's one of those, you know, buy once and be done with it. Um, so we, we will end up setting up basically consultation meetings between ourselves, the customer and uh, the pro chiller rep to walk through like, okay, this is our seller size. Are you using glycol to help cool down your wort? You know, these specific things. Um, and then a lot of times the chiller manufacturers can actually run very specific calculations to figure out exactly what unit you need. Um, you know, we also consider things um, for, you know, obviously if you're putting a chiller outside in Texas versus Alaska, that's going to change the load on it. Another big one people tend to overlook is for direct fire um, systems or even uh, natural gas or propane steam boilers. You have to derate once you get above about 5,000 feet in elevation. So for our friends in Colorado and up in the mountains, you actually will typically need to oversize um, anything that is fired with gas. Um, I can't remember the exact number, but it's like you lose something like 5% for every thousand feet over 5,000 feet of elevation because there's just less oxygen. Um, so those are things to consider in making sure that you're sourcing the right, um, that, you know, correct ancillary stuff to fit both your equipment and your locale. And again, that's part of why we like to build it all together because um, even though we don't make any money off of it, it is much easier for us to control and know like, well, your tanks aren't cooling because you went, you know, and bought a used chiller. We don't even, we don't know what the capacity is. And, you know, you may just have a very undersized chiller. If we built this package for you, we can have assurances that the equipment's going to operate, you know, effectively in the way that we designed it to. So sometimes you can, you know, if you, um, again, buy used with that stuff. Brian had a good point in our last one where if it moves, you know, probably don't buy it used and don't, don't buy it overseas. Um, a lot of times trying to rehab stuff like that is going to end up costing you more and um, you know having a warranty on your chiller is huge um the chiller is really even though i sell brew houses the chiller is, is pretty much the lifeblood of, of your brewery you can't ferment without it um and you have the potential to lose a lot of money if your your chiller goes down at a bad time so um yeah, definitely things to consider and things that you should be using um, whoever your your vendor vendors are to to make sure they're giving you kind of thorough input on that. Awesome. Laura? So when somebody's looking at purchasing equipment, are there some additional pieces uh, that you would suggest kind of building in, even if you're covering the equipment? Um, forklift for installation, labor obviously for for putting together and installing like the chiller and all the piping and all that kind of stuff is there kind of a, a ballpark or uh recommended is it more just keep asking questions um yeah and a lot of that is going to be through your contractors so stuff like and it, it also depends on how handy you are because a lot of our customers, you know, will run their own glycol piping. A lot of times that's done with either copper or CPVC. And, you know, if you can stick pipes together and, you know, like we'll help you with how to design an efficient loop. But if you can stick pipes together, you know, that's that's somewhere that you can save money. Um, the steam piping installation is definitely one of the, the higher dollar um, things that we see. And this is very important to vet with contractors. And again, something that will help 
Um, we've got some kind of FAQs and general guidelines for installing steam piping for a brew house because I've seen bids for the exact same job range from 12000 to 45000 And the thing to keep in mind for, you know, the, the kind of brewery sizes that we typically operate in, we're using low pressure steam, which is 15 PSI or below. So that is, I mean, that's below, you know, normal city water pressure. Again, at the end of the day, yes, it is steam, you know, and this is a, it's something that has inherent risk. Um, but we don't need high pressure piping. And I think a lot of times um, contractors will hear steam and they automatically jump to high pressure steam, which requires much more expensive materials, more expensive processing. Um, so make sure that you have a contractor who has a clear concept of, of what you guys are doing. Um, other things that are gonna be kind of not so hidden costs, but make sure you put in some good floors and trench drains. Um, that can typically, you're, you're gonna need to cut concrete and do some plumbing work there. Um, if you can get with a good plumbing contractor, or, you know, a good local plumbing business that has the capability to do all of those things, that's probably ideal. Because again, you have one person um, kind of monitoring the job. And again, for us, we, because we own and operate a brewery, we've sold a ton of breweries, you know, we've seen how it's done well, um, where corners were cut that weren't the best. We're always happy to advise, you know, your trades on, on what they should be doing. And, you know, if you see bids come back that seem suspiciously high, you know, we're always happy to, happy to help kind of pick those apart. But definitely just, just like shopping for equipment, reach out for a couple different quotes you know see who kind of the, the contractors that give you the warm fuzzies and the people that you know may seem kind of fly by night um it is definitely depending on your building and everything i mean there's times when the construction costs can be as much as the equipment so it's definitely something that's important to look at in advance gotcha chris excuse me, I'd throw in a, a final comment on that. Somebody that, excuse me, talks to a lot of folks that have opened their brewery and they're open already. Be very mindful of how much you bite off as a business owner and how much you want to do to save the the money on hiring someone to do it. It, it seems the majority of folks I talk to about it tell me that was much harder than I expected. It delayed my opening more than I expected it to. Plus with other construction overruns, you as a person who's not a professional doing it might save you a little bit of money up front, but think about how much your time is worth and then how critical is it that you open at the time you said you needed to. And oftentimes your the value of your time in opening sooner is going to be much more valuable than saving that little bit of money up front to do the work yourself. Good point. Um, yes. Okay. Oh, I was going to just throw in one last piece there just kind of as a, a general rule of thumb, you definitely want to have somebody on staff, if not yourself, that is at least mechanically inclined. Um, basically, if you own and operate a brewery, you're going to be constantly solving problems. And it's even with the, the best designed equipment and highest quality equipment or, you know, plumbing or whatever, um, it's going to break. Entropy is accelerated in the brewery environment. So, if you have to call someone, you know, every time you have a breaker trip or whatever, that's going to get expensive quickly. Um, so even during that build out phase, I would agree if it's stuff that's outside your scope, if you're, you've never done it before, don't do it by yourself. But I also know a lot of people who have saved some money because they're like, you know, I'll help, you know, the contractor run, run plumbing or, or whatever. And then you have an idea of, how it went in and how to fix it. Um, that's inevitably going to save you a lot of money in the long run. Gotcha. Brian, switching tracks again a little bit. So having seen some of the carts you designed for your brewing systems, do you find that having a mobile brewing system is flexibility that a lot of brewers use or prefer? And is that portability and mobility essential for some really small nano breweries that are in tiny spaces? 
Yeah, um, absolutely. I would say that most of the breweries that I work with are very tight on space. Um, you know, typically these breweries find their best efficiencies by utilizing certain spaces in their brewery for multiple purposes. You know, whether it be packaging, grain crushing, keg cleaning, you name it. Any time you can have those types of pieces of equipment on wheels or casters, you know, where they can be rolled out, utilized in a space and then stored away. That is um, for efficiency of space that becomes pretty critical in a lot of smaller breweries. And the pilot systems like we build would probably fall most often into that category and scenario. So we make sure that when we're building our equipment, um, making sure it's compact and portable is really at the forefront of our design process. Um, for this reason, we also build things like two vessel pilot systems, you know, without a hot liquor tank. Um, and that saves space as many breweries already have an HLT in their primary system. And we don't need to duplicate that tank and we can make it everything just that much more compact and, and portable that way. So absolutely. Great. So we're basically getting to the end, but before we wrap it up, and I know you guys gave some uh, general guidance last time, but any other words of advice for, for our startup listeners? Brian, start with you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, I think just to repeat some things that from the first podcast and things we've said before, just really don't hesitate to ask a million questions. Yeah. Every process, you know, your manufacturers are your biggest resource for information when you're starting a brewery. And uh, you may think you're bugging us. You're not bugging us. Um, we, uh, we want you to be successful. So the more questions you can ask and the more things we can helpful help with, the better. And you want, as we've said before, you want to look for a manufacturer that's willing to to be available and contactable, I guess is a word, and uh, answer those questions for you. Awesome. Alex? Yeah, I'll kind of piggyback off of that. Um, I would say, you know, obviously asking questions using, using the resources that you have through your vendors um, to put the onus back on you a little bit, have a clear concept of, of what you're trying to do and have a clear concept of the questions that you should be asking. Um, you know, one of the things that we see a lot is people coming to us saying, I want a seven barrel brew house. And when we ask the question, why, you know, how much beer do you want to make? You know, if you don't have an answer to that, you're, you're kind of starting at the wrong place. Um, so make sure you're doing a lot of this kind of, at least forethought, you know, ideally having at least a crude business plan together, um, that kind of thing before you, because as Chris mentioned, you know, if we don't know exactly what it is you're going to do, if you don't know what it is exactly you're going to do, it's very hard for us to cover the breadth of knowledge that you need and, you know, give you the correct answers to those questions. Um, I will also say we actually just had a call with a customer yesterday. Our uh, CFO is also the CFO of our sister brewery, but he was also a professional brewer for seven years. So we had a customer who was kind of in this very early trying to figure out finance, you know, and we ended up having an hour long call with him and our CFO talking through strategy you know, we'll we'll give you samples of the books that we use for our brewery. Um, so I think a lot of times, too, you don't necessarily know what resources, um, you know, your vendors or even just, you know, people in your network have. Um, but you have to be aware of those questions to ask. Um, so definitely use those resources, but be prepared with the questions um, that you feel you need to ask and have a clear concept of, of what you're looking to do, because that's inevitably what's going to make you successful. Excellent. And Chris. Yeah, I have a, I have a separate final thought that what, what I'm about to say, but I wanted to dovetail on Alex's um, comment about, um, you know, having a, a strong idea of what you need or want to achieve going into a vendor conversation. Um, I, I would say, if you don't and you want to reach out, you know, expect those conversations to be longer or 
multiple conversations. I was chatting with a distillery a couple of weeks ago and it, we got to questioning and the conversation was pretty short and we ended it with, okay, for us to continue talking, I need you know these three bits of information from you. How long do you need to get that information? Let's connect again after that. And then you give them homework and I can help coach and consult a bit, um, at least on what info I need, go and do it, come back. And then we'll, you know, we, we talked again. It's like, all right, great. We're here now. We need this next bit of information. Go do that. And I'm happy to do that because it's, it's pretty short time for me. Um, and I know it helps the person out. So it, calling with no understanding of what you need and wanting to know pricing immediately, uh, it's likely not going to happen. Um, but so for my final thoughts, I, on the first podcast, I talked about making sure you know what's important to you when you're shopping for equipment um, so that you can get the answers to what's important to you. I'd say after you know what's important to you um, and you get to the point of getting costs for things, um, look at the equipment cost, not only as the upfront cost to purchase it, but the total cost to own this thing. The upfront cost plus what are your, your costs throughout ownership? Uh, and some examples are reliability of the equipment. Um, does the company have a reputation that the equipment's going to run most of the time and not break down often? Um, if, I mean, we've talked about a lot, equipment is going to break. So when it does break, how quickly can you get back up and running? Is the company you're buying from going to be able to troubleshoot with you quickly, get you the parts you need quickly so you're back up and running? Um, consider durability. How long is this equipment going to last me? Does the manufacturer have examples of equipment that's 10 years old, 20 years old, 50 years old? Um, and then do they have a lot of equipment out there? So are they experienced in what they're doing? These are all things that are going to give you a good idea of how high quality the equipment is, essentially how long is it going to last you? Maintenance costs, uh, what is it going to cost you to own it as far as replacing gaskets, um, You know, greasing things, tightening things? What's my downtime for that? Um, what's the quality of my final product when it comes to canning or packaging equipment specifically, do they have a reputation of low dissolved oxygen, good seam integrity? Those are going to reduce the risk of, uh, of needing to call back equipment, um, recall equipment, or geez, not equipment, uh, beer. And then, uh, yeah, finally, I've touched on this a little bit, but the manufacturer, do they have experience um, in the field you're purchasing? Is it the first machine they ever built. You don't want to be the testing ground for a manufacturer to dial in their machine. Um, and then do they have a lot of equipment out there, which will uh, probably mean they can help you diagnose, diagnose it quickly when it goes down. Great. Thank you all very much. Pretty fantastic. I, I think this kind of takes me a little bit back to some of the advice earlier about listen, you know, keeping an open mind and being um, open to to changing your preconceived notion of of going cheapest or you know some of the some of the additional information we're getting here might change somebody's plan completely and if you go in being inflexible I, I think you might lose in the long run if you're if you're open-minded you can learn from the people that you're working with um, and maybe do better um, so anyway a, a big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us now and in the future for episode 13. Equipment and Infrastructure Part 2 of the Start a Brewery podcast. We invite you to join us for our next episode, 14, continuing forward with your business plan. This time we know there will not be a Part 3, so actually delving into the question of contract brewing and alternating proprietorships as scheduled. This will be released before any fireworks and sparklers are lit on Tuesday, July 4th. We have a final wrap-up word from our sponsor. ABS Commercial has been your full-service brewery outfitter for over 10 years. They are proud to offer brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts to brewers across the country, as well as equipment for distilling, cider making, wine making, and more. They know the ins and outs of the brewing and installation process and can design the perfect setup for you. Whether you're just starting out or looking to expand, visit them today at abs commercial com to discuss your customized brewery needs. ABS Commercial, we are brewers. While you're anticipating the release of our next episode, feel free to visit the Start a Brewery website at startabrewery.com, a free resource for those who are looking to open or grow their breweries. Be sure to look through the task lists offered for each stage of the process, plan, act, open, and grow, at the educational resources, and at the offerings from our savvy contributors in our growing library. You can also sign up for an occasional electronic update with new Startup Brewery contributors, content, events, and more great information on the contact page of the website. 
We also encourage you to explore the All About Beer website at allaboutbeer.com. Perhaps pop in to enjoy one of their excellent podcasts as well. In the meantime, this has been Laura Lodge and Candice Moon wishing you a terrific day and thanking you once again for joining us on our podcast journey to start a brewery.